So we're having fun with this uh, movie series all summer long. Where we're just kind of taking movies and pulling out a theme and, and walking through it. And uh, so this week, we're, for Father's Day, we thought we'd go into the classic movie vault and pull out Top Gun. And now I remember when, I was, uh, when Top Gun came out in 1986, and I was just a, a little guy. Um, and it was just the coolest thing in the world to see uh, this guy, jet fighter, pilot, the glasses, and all kinds of stuff like that. So, uh, so with that, we play off it, and apparently for guys, it's still just as cool uh, for us to hang out and go to the dollar store and buy aviator glasses and, and enjoy those. And you think we just got those for today, but I've been wearing them for, for days now, nonstop. Um, let me pray for you, because I think this morning... Uh, I want to challenge you in something that, that comes straight out of God's Word. And uh, even though this, I think, would be very central for men and how you lead your family, this is a pretty broad sermon for everyone who calls themselves a believer in Christ. So let me just pray for you to that end, if I can. Father, we lift this up to you. We come to you, and you just ask, Father, however you want to speak in this period of time, would, would our hearts and our minds, our ears be wide open? And would we receive the challenge of you? We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Now, uh, this is uh, wanting to really focus on our, our prayer time and stuff is a little bit shorter message this morning, maybe in honor of, of Men's Day, too. I don't know. Uh, a little bit shorter sermon. Uh, don't, don't miss the way God wants to direct. Um, when I first moved here to North Carolina, it's about five and a half years ago now, I remember the first time I went up and down Wendover Avenue, um, which is awesome because, you know, one day I didn't know at the time we'd own land on Wendover and be progressing to build our church on Wendover. But uh, as I was driving up Wendover, uh, I noticed that there was like this tiny independent car lot, no bigger than like for 10 cars, maybe. And the the concrete was all cracked up and it was different levels. Uh, It was like a way old style gas station that had kind of been repainted, but not really done up. The building and the pillars, the parking lot would be what you call pretty shabby, all right, but painted in huge white letters on top of this place, looking very pretty and and modern, was the words, world-class automobiles. World-class automobiles. Now, I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking world-class, and I'm looking at, and here was a place that barely had the resources to even, like, be able to put cars out somewhere, much less, you know, look pristine, and they're calling themselves world-class, world-class automobiles. Now, honestly, I, I'm not mocking uh, this morning, and, and you're going to go out on, on Windover this afternoon, but it's actually been torn down and it's gone. Um, I actually love it. I, I love it. That here's a place that, that can, can barely function seemingly, but they're view themselves as world-class. So it's not mocking. In fact, it's actually, this ambition is actually entirely appropriate as we look to the pages of Scripture and we look at this, like, explosion of the young church right after Jesus ascended up into heaven and the church just exploded everywhere, the ambition of this small group. You see, Jesus left this partially trained group of followers Fishermen, tax collectors, former prostitutes, cowards. That's who Jesus left. And yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit coming on their life, these guys actually were told that they would see 
like kings bow because of their ministry and serve and honor and worship God. That's what they were told. So did it happen when the Holy Spirit came upon them? We find in the book of Acts that's exactly what happened. This small, still partially trained group went out and they started to minister. And we find that the known world was, was turned upside down because of the ministry of these. They went out and they went forth, not as a band of misfits, but they actually went forth with like this mentality and this thought process like world-class automobiles, or at least for them, you know, empowered speakers for God. And that's exactly what they did. I wonder for you this morning, like, have you ever thought of yourselves as somebody who could go out and make a significant impact for God? You see, I think we buy into a couple things, like what I just said. I think we buy into the idea that we're kind of like a, maybe a misfit, or we're the partially trained person. We're the person that is of little significance in, in our lives. I mean, I look and I compare myself to somebody else, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not even close to that worthy or that talented or that amazing. We buy into that concept a lot. I wonder if you've ever allowed yourself just the moment to think that God could take that, even if it was true about you, God could take that and he could use it for something extraordinary for his kingdom. Have you ever thought that? Well, that's what we want to talk about. I want to ask you that question. How much impact do you plan on having for the kingdom of God? How much? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How much impact do you plan on having for God's kingdom? J.D. Garrar once said it this way, don't mock those who overestimate their potential in the kingdom of God. Mock those who underestimate it. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, there's incredible things that we can do. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you two promises that Jesus gave his followers. And then I I really, I just want to ask you, how do you think your life would change if you took those two promises, like, seriously? Like, you took them seriously, put them into play, what would it look like? Now, I'm going to tell you something before we begin. These are odd promises. Uh, they're, they're odd. In fact, your knee-jerk reaction as I read them to you is going to be to think, much like I thought as I read them, is I can't possibly see how these are remotely true, even though they come from the lips of Jesus. How would these promises even be possible? They must be the greatest, most overstated promises to ever exist. But they come from the lips of Jesus, so we need to jump right in and figure out really what he meant by them. So first, let's look at a passage in Matthew chapter 11. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to it. We're going to read one verse out of Matthew this morning. It'll be on the screen uh, if not. John the Baptist, he's in prison, right? And he sends these messengers to Jesus just to verify that indeed Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. And so when his messengers return and they have verified now, uh, Jesus has said, yes, indeed, that Jesus starts to tell John's disciples or his followers a, a bit about the impact that John has had. And so he begins sharing this in chapter 11, and he gets to this verse in, or in verse 11 of chapter 11, which has the interesting words in the first promise here. It says this, Matthew eleven eleven. I tell you the truth, 
of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Uh, Can you see what Jesus thought of John the Baptist? Pretty high thought, pretty high opinion of him. Yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Does that sound strange to anyone? The words of Jesus. Jesus saw John the Baptist as the greatest prophet who ever lived. Remember we talked about Jonah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Samuel. No, it's it's John the Baptist that Jesus names here as the greatest. And yet he says the least talented believer in the kingdom would be greater than John the Baptist. Seriously. I mean, come on, Jesus. What? I mean, that can't possibly be true. But Jesus says it. Statistically speaking, right now, somebody on planet Earth is the least spiritually talented person that exists, right? I mean, it's, mathematically speaking, that would have to be true. In fact, you might be sitting here hearing this, thinking, I wonder if it's me. <laughs> and God up in heaven is looking down and saying, yep, yep, it's you, you're the bottom of the pile. <laughs> but even if that was true, right? Even if that was an accurate depiction of you, do you know what's being said here? The least spiritually gifted Christian on planet earth, according to Jesus, that you're in a greater position and potential to impact the kingdom than even John the Baptist. Crazy, huh? Why? Well, let's look at this and and see a little bit more about this. Do you know that Unlike John the Baptist, you know the truth about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. If you look at like a timetable and you draw a line here in the middle where Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and he rose from the dead, we live on this side and we have this knowledge and understanding of what that meant. John lived on this side. And so you have been revealed to you something incredible about who indeed Jesus is and what he would do with his life. You see, even the followers who claimed him as the Messiah, the the coming king, they had a hard time fathoming that Jesus meant he would physically die for our sins. And then just the possibility and the reality that a human being, Jesus, would raise from the dead. But we have that understanding and that that knowledge that John didn't have. We also find that we have the power of the Holy Spirit, who is actually permanently dwells and is infused in the life of all those who say that they are believers in Jesus Christ. And that wasn't what John experienced on earth. I mean, do you catch what's being said here? That you don't just have Jesus alongside of you. You actually have Jesus through the Holy Spirit in you, dwelling in you. And it's, it's the Spirit of God that, that guides us in the wisdom of this Christian life. It's the Spirit of God that, that helps us to stand before temptation when we face it. It's the Spirit of God that empowers us to be a witness and a recruiter for his kingdom. That Spirit, it was given to us through what Jesus did on the cross. And John the Baptist, obviously, he did this amazing job, uh, unlike anyone had ever done, preaching about repentance and then baptizing. A few weeks back, we actually talked about this message of baptism and what John was doing, and it was foreign. It was new. 
But you know something John didn't know? He didn't know about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins and he conquered sin. And when he rose from the grave, the Bible tells us he conquered death. That we might live and live with God eternally. And because you know that, many of you that have said yes to Christ, because you know that, because you claim that in your life, you're a child of God. You're what we call a Christian because of that. And because you know that, and I know that, we have this opportunity, no, um, we have this calling in our life to actually tell others about it as well. Greater than even John the Baptist is what he said. That's that's mind-blowing to me, but that's what Jesus says here in this promise. Now, if you think that that's kind of mind-blowing promise from Jesus, wait till you uh, hear this next one. This, I, I, I view this as kind of the, an astounding promise that Jesus made to his disciples, and he did this right in the upper room, right at the end of his life, the night he introduced communion to them and spoke to them, the night that just a little bit later he would be arrested and, and then tried. This is what he says, John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus' words, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done. Now we could stop there. That's a pretty amazing statement in itself. The same works that Jesus did, anyone who believes. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. He says, and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. I don't know about you, this is one of those promises, though, when I I read this, it's so astonishing that I just feel tempted to to not take it seriously at all. Like, uh, every once in a while, I I jokingly will say to somebody who has said, hey, good job, Tom, way to go, Tom, and the joke is, well, I can't trust you, you're an encourager. Meaning, you're going to lift me up anyway, thank you. Um, Like, is this one of Jesus' like over-encouraging statements? You know, hey, hang in there, you got this, I believe in you, kind of statements. Greater works than even I did. You got this. Or did Jesus actually claim and mean this astonishing promise? I feel tempted not to take it seriously, but greater works than Jesus? How is that even possible? I mean, the same works, that would be crazy enough. But he says, in even greater works. So let me just ask you, have you ever done a greater work than Jesus? Ever healed anyone? Ever raised a man from the dead? Uh, Have you ever, like, cast demons out of someone and thrown it into pigs? Have you ever taken, like, your cheeseburger and fries and, like, multiplied it for, like, a a packed-out Greensboro Coliseum? Now, assuming the answer is no, what could Jesus possibly have meant here by doing greater works than him? I think there's a couple things at play here that I want to walk through. First of all, uh, Jesus meant that we could have a further reach than he did. And even a further reach than Jesus did. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever, like, have you ever taken a lesson in something? You know, you, know, you needed to do golf lessons or piano lessons or maybe some cooking lessons or things like that. You ever done a lesson in something? Yeah, Al and I, that's about it. So everybody else is, I guess, very competent, but we're not. So yeah, a lesson. So, um, so I've done them sometimes, you know, like with uh, golf, done some lessons because I'm not very good. So, um, 
And I don't know about you when you do your lessons, but when I'm with the instructor and I'm like been over here and they're holding my shoulder and telling me to do this and that and everything, not only do I get in the right positions to do the right things, but I actually see a difference most of the time immediately. I start to feel like something's happening that resembles, you know, a golf swing and maybe the ball would go that way instead of that way when I swing. But another thing happens, it's neat, I actually get confident. I mean, I get over the ball and I'm you know, like, yeah, that's the right position. That's where my elbow should be. That's where my hand should be. And I start to feel really good in that swing, right? It's the same with any lessons that you get. When the instructor is with you and teaching you and, and developing you and moving things how they need to work, you start to do it a bit better, you start to get the confidence that I, I could do this thing. Sometimes I get the overconfidence and I think, I think I've mastered this thing. But the funny thing happens. Uh, when my instructor is not there or when I go away from the lesson, it doesn't seem to take very long for me to start losing sight. I stand over the ball and I just, I can't, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore and, and how to stand and how to swing and it just like goes away. Sometimes I just stare down at the ball and think, I don't know how to do this, period. Um, I'll just throw it somewhere. And this is how it happens. Now imagine this, though. Imagine that like your instructor, for whatever it was, like actually, let's say my golf instructor would climb into my body, just down inside of me, right? Takes over my body and my head. And so now I'm moving like my instructor and I'm thinking like my instructor. And so I pull up to the golf course and even before I've popped the trunk to get my clubs out of the car, my instructor's already talking about this mental game, this mental prep, which I don't even know what that means in the game of golf, the mental prep, but, but he's now walking me through this, right? By the time I get to the first tee, um, excuse me, by the time I get to the, the, the practice range, he's saying, here's the drills, here's what we're going to do, here's what you need to know, move that, move this, and do this. By the time I get to that first tee, like, I'm so confident because my instructor has been speaking to me nonstop and working with me the whole time. And so over the next 18 holes, the instructor's walking with me, and everything I encounter, I encounter with and through the instructor as well. I'm even able to stop for a moment and, like, give my uh, playing partner, who clearly does not have a instructor in him, I'm able to give him some pointers and help him out as well. That sounds crazy, and it's not a possible scenario, though, man, it would be a great marketing thing for golf games if it could happen not possible. But you need to understand, this is one of the reasons that Jesus says what he says about doing greater works. That during Jesus' lifetime, Jesus was actually confined to his body. Though he was the great, the, the, the rabbi and the great instructor and teacher, he was confined to his body. When the disciples wanted to hear from Jesus, when they wanted to be taught, they had to go to him physically. The crowds came to Jesus, Jesus went to the crowds we find that in his lifetime, he was actually confined, confined his influence to this relatively small sector of Palestine. That's where Jesus went. It's where he ministered. But now, check this out. After his death and resurrection, and after he says the, 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 the Holy Spirit comes, the influence changes. The presence of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, changes. In fact, Jesus thought this was such an important thing that he says it this way in John chapter 16, verse 7. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. 
You ever heard of that from Jesus? Jesus saying, hey, you know, it's best if I just go away from you. Because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. We find that after the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus goes up to be in heaven with, with God, that his followers were able to actually do a more widely scattered amount of work than even Jesus did geographically. They were able to have this influence on even a larger number of people. We find that the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples, and 3,000 people, that if you go back through the Gospels and you just start counting all the way through the best you can, we don't even get a number that great. And on the first day, the first day, this type of work, this type of, this conversion happens. And Jesus calls this greater work because of where my spirit can go and the ministry that now can happen through anyone who claims Jesus as their savior. Secondly, we find that this, this component is what Jesus meant in this passage is we really find it's understood through the book of Acts. This, this short book in, in the Bible is just one book in the whole Bible, but it, it shares like the adventures of the apostles when they went out and they started to actually live out the Holy Spirit in their life. And they went out and they start to minister everywhere. And what we find here when, when they go out is we find that everywhere in the known world starts to know about Jesus. And it doesn't take that many years for it to happen. Theologian Leon Morris actually says it this way. There was a few instances of healing in the book of Acts. But the main emphasis was on the mighty works of conversion. That the main emphasis here and the focus of what the Holy Spirit did through the disciples is sharing who Jesus Christ was. Is going from town to town and telling people the hope they had experienced in their own life. It's no different than you. You sit at a cubicle and the person next to you comes and says, I'm just a mess. I don't know what to do. Our marriage is just falling apart and I can't figure out... I mean, we just, we're trying, but it just, I mean, we just keep hitting the wall, and we just don't even know how to function with each other. And you turn to them, and you start conversing. And somewhere in the conversation, you start to talk to them about what you think Jesus can bring to their marriage. You start to talk to them the hope that, that you have found through God's Word and what it teaches you and, and the freedom that you've experienced in your own relationship with your spouse through what Jesus brought to your life. What are you doing? You're doing what the disciples did. You're sharing the hope of Jesus Christ, and you're doing it with somebody in a cubicle, somebody that I'll never sit next to and probably never even bump into and talk to. You've taken Jesus Christ there. That's the mighty work of conversion, sharing Jesus Christ with somebody else. What does this mean? That uh, the, the mission Jesus sent us out on, Jesus actually viewed it as greater because of the widespreadness that they would be able to go out and share the name of Jesus and draw people into a relationship with God. He's saying that leading somebody to saying yes in salvation is even greater than the work of healing a lame man. And we're amazed by miracles, and so should we be. But Jesus is saying somebody coming back into right relationship with God, it's even more significant. Why? Because one is temporary— and one's eternal. And that's the greater works 
that Jesus sends us out in. We find in Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, Jesus tells us, this, this story is told about Jesus healing the lame man, but what is the purpose? It's to, he, to prove that he has the power to forgive sins and to reconcile this person with God. That's the greater work, bringing salvation. When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we see that Jesus' miracles of healing, they're really only a sign of this greater and more significant work that he will do, going to the cross, dying on the cross, raising from the dead to give us this opportunity of being reconciled and in right relationship with God. So when we persuade others to believe in Jesus— when we talk to them and we share the hope that we've experienced in Christ, we're accomplishing this greater work that Jesus speaks of here. Now, I would hope you wouldn't go out of here and get kind of big-headed. I would hope you would not go out of here and see yourself as greater and more significant than Jesus Christ. Um, That would be a problem in your theology. But at the same time, I would hope you would go out of here this morning and know that Jesus has said... You are so significant to me and to the kingdom of my Father that you're going to go out and you're going to do things that I didn't even do in my three years of walking this earth, going out and you have that kind of opportunity. Unlike Jesus, as a church, as a body of believers, we're not restricted to a geographical area. We can send people out anywhere. This next week, we send a group to Guatemala. But you can go anywhere on the baseball field, when you take your kids sitting in the stands, anywhere you go is that opportunity. That's what Jesus says. This is a greater work. So what does this mean for you and I? Can I just briefly in our our remaining few minutes just tell you three things I think this means for you, and some of it is by way of introduction in where we're we're going in, in the fall. What does this mean for you? And uh, Number one, it, it means we have a responsibility to be lived out. We have this responsibility to be a part of these greater works, to be lived out. That's our responsibility as Christians. You see, one of the deadliest things in our Christianity is to look at the mission of God's word, to look at what God calls us to do and say, this is choice. I can kind of do this or I don't have to do this. Either way, I'm good. God loves. He does. But God has said, no, I've assembled you, I've empowered you, I've impacted you, I've given you my Holy Spirit for the purpose of carrying out this responsibility of going into all the world and of sharing who I am to places that Jesus physically never was able to go. You get to take that Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is this, we've got to be discipled for that responsibility. We've got to be discipled. Can I just make a confession to you, church? For years in the ministry, my understanding of discipleship went like this. You come to the church, you get kind of plugged in, maybe you become a Christian. We kind of watch you for a little while. And then when you hit this moment, we're like, man, this person's really kind of tracking. They're really kind of coming along. They joined a small group, you know, they're really talking Christian stuff now. Let's disciple them. And then I find the most mature Christian I can in the church. I tell them, hey, I'll give you a little bit of breakfast fund here. Take them out and one-on-one and meet with them. Nothing wrong with any of that. But you know what? Discipleship is for everyone. And as I looked at this, I became impacted by God to start looking at the church as a whole and to ask, 
discipleship is not something you save for a certain group or for a certain elite or a certain group that, uh, that kind of falls into a certain category in the church. Every single one of us who says, I'm ready to follow Christ from, the, from day one to 15 years, every single one of us, God says, you need to be a discipled, built up, raised up, built into for the purpose of this responsibility we've talked about this morning. And in fact, I became so motivated by this somewhere in December and January that as I started to study and research and start to ask questions about this, can I tell you right now what's going on? Every Monday at 1 o'clock, your staff is going through a 12-week discipleship training program on how to incorporate discipleship entirely, church whole, all the way through. And then I invited uh, a number of ministry leaders, people that were in some form of leadership in the church, to, to Monday nights to walk through the same thing. And, you know, just last Monday night, we started the first for 12 people who said, yeah, I want to be a part of that. So that we can look at discipleship totally in the whole church to say that if you're part of Windover Hills, it means we want you to be a part of discipleship as, as well. Now, we're all at different stages in our spiritual growth. Some of you are, are well mature and moving along, and I look at you, and, and I, I want to ask questions and draw myself to you to learn. Others of you, it's so brand new. Said I said yes in Jesus, but I don't, I don't even understand this world at all yet. We're all to be discipled at different levels throughout That's what those groups are meeting to do. And in the fall, we want to make sure we launch a full discipleship that helps us as a church meet this responsibility we're talking about. And then finally, number three, we got to teach others about this responsibility as well. We want to build into others. If you're at the point where it's time in your life to turn around and build into others and help somebody else in this responsibility of taking Jesus' name into our workplace, into our schools, wherever else, then you know what God has said? Do it. Build into somebody. You don't even have to wait for a church program. Take them out and start talking to them and build into them in that way. In the end, I look at this. You know what Jesus calls this? Greater works. Greater works. When we live it out everywhere we go as the body of believers, even a group this size, a small church here in Greensboro, can live it out And Jesus looks and says, that's it. That's the greater works I'm talking about. Well, let me pray for you this morning. And we'll we'll submit this to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your words, even the confusing ones, Lord, that cause us sometimes to either be puzzled and stop or just uh, read real quick right by it to get on to the next thing. Father, this morning I believe strongly that you are saying that there was an influence that John the Baptist in physical form, there was an influence that Jesus Christ in physical form had on the people around them, that you have said the body of believers committed to the mission of God through being empowered by the Holy Spirit can even do greater works, farther reaching works than even John the Baptist and Jesus in human form did. We thank you, Lord. Those are your words. And so, Lord, would you empower us to do that? Lord, I'd recognize there's probably somebody out there that that just views themselves as insignificant in your kingdom. They don't feel gifted. They don't feel like they can do anything. Father, would it just be today, this week, Lord, would you reveal to them? Could they just stop and say, Lord, I'm surrendered to you? And then would you make it clear, reveal to them, 
even in a small way, how they can be used by you. Father, it's, it's uneducated fishermen. It's tax collectors who were hated. It was prostitutes that you, that you converted. Father, these are the kind of people that you used. In fact, we find, Lord, that even though there was a couple religious leaders that came to Jesus and surrendered, we don't see an instance where Jesus went and recruited for his twelve. Father, I, I, he found people that seemingly were seemingly were nobodies, at least not for the work of changing the world. Father, I believe that right here in this room, in a church our size, that you can use us to impact those that we come in contact with. Lord, for some of us this week, it might be just talking to someone. We know they're going through a tough time. It's just figuring out how to talk to them about the hope we found. For others of us, Lord, it might just be that just trying to just slip an invitation to come be with me in church. Then we'll go away and we'll talk about what they experienced and what God might have said to them. But whatever it may be, just say yes to God and walk out and do it. Lord, as we move forward as a church into the mission of being discipled, all of us, raise up leaders, Lord, show us how to do that. Show us what it looks like in our context. We'll trust you for that journey. Now, Lord, would you be with the fathers today? May it be a wonderful day for them. For some, Lord, I know it's Father's Day. The whole concept of father is just not a pretty one. Could they then draw to the concept of you, God, the heavenly father, who is a good father and loves us? I pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.